Hello. In this episode of Airs for Architecture, social historian, writer and broadcaster Ken Warpole speaks about his life and work, particularly the new edition of Modern Hospice Design, The Architecture of Palliative and Social Care, published by Routledge this year. A is for Architecture, a podcast about architecture, buildings, urban culture and space. Hello and welcome to another episode of A is for Architecture. I'm talking today to Ken Warpole, writer, broadcaster? Yes, sort of, yeah. yeah. About your new book, um, or your reissued book, uh, Modern Hospice Design, the Architecture of Palliative and Social Care, which has come out again with Routledge. But before we get into that, Ken, would you be so kind as to introduce yourself? Um, sure, yes. Um, well, I was born in 1944. Um, my parents were both living in the East End, but I, because the war was on, we, I was actually born in a castle in Derbyshire to which the um, Salvation Army Hospital in Hackney was um, removed uh, for the duration of the war. And then I was in Leytonstone until the age of six, and then we moved out to Coast Lessex to Hadley, uh, and then eventually to South End, and strangely, that that relationship between East London and Coast Lessex has, in the last couple of decades, become to slightly obsess me. I've been completely fascinated by the push-pull relationship of the East End of London with suburban and rural Essex, mm. uh, especially around issues of culture. And this kind of tension around what, what is country, what is city, and what is in between. And also, notably, between the fact that Essex became the territory where a lot of social experimentation happened as a result of the extreme policy of East End of London, and organisations like Salvation Army or people like George Lansbury were endlessly trying out back-to-the-land experiments or set, creating settlements for rehabilitation of people with alcohol or health problems. And I guess for the last 20 years, I've been especially interested in notions of therapeutic settlements, alternative communities, religious and political, um, elective kind of communities. And that it does actually go back to the, my childhood. So were you trained in architecture? Because you write a lot and you write a fascinating blog and you write books, but there's always this spatial architectural kind of content to it. Were you trained as an architect? I've been thinking about that since you made this invitation um, to talk about the, um, my early interest in architecture. The fact is my father was a carpenter and we, we were always moving because he was always renting kind of houses that had garages where he would immediately install a big circular saw and a band saw and various other things until the neighbours got petitions up to have us moved on. So there was always a workshop. And I kind of, by the age of 14, I was probably using a circular saw and a band saw and I knew all the woodworking tools. And occasionally I helped him out on one or two jobs. So... You know, the practical skills around construction or all that kind of did come sort of naturally to me. But I, I past 11 plus, went to the South End High School for boys. I didn't really enjoy it. And when I left school at 16, I really didn't know what I wanted to do. But there was a family friend who I was rather, I rather admired. 
He was about eight, ten years older than me, and I was 16. But he'd become a civil engineer. He had a very nice lifestyle. He was interested in jazz, and I kind of slightly hero-worshipped him. And uh, he said, well, he could get me into civil engineering. Uh, he was working for a medium-sized piling firm, actually, uh, in East Anglia, uh, mostly doing roads and, you know, um, sewage works and water I mean, a lot of the a lot of the territory was um, underdeveloped and they were putting you know they were they were putting in the new road systems and so on so i went to work for this company and enrolled at the southern municipal college ordinary national certificate and building studies and from there i went to work for a, sorry a, a, a much larger firm braithwaite so piling company with whom I worked for about three years on big projects. We worked initially, initially at Camel Lairds in Liverpool on the new construction of a new dock, then to Glasgow on the now notorious Red Road flats, where I was kind of measuring out the site, putting in the positions of the piles and so on. It was hard work, and I, I really, after about three years, I realised I was completely temperamentally unsuited to being away from home. Piling, of course, when you go, when, if you're involved in piling, you're the first on the site, you turn what is usually a greenfield site into a quagmire. Uh, and the winter in Glasgow was terrible. So, and, and all you can do in the evening is just simply go to the pub because you're in lodgings <laughs> or digs. Um, and three years of that, turned me off to that. So I then um, applied to become an English teacher um, as a mature student. So I went to Brighton and did my training there and then became an English teacher for a number of years in Hackney. Which school in Hackney? Hackney Downs, yeah. It was a boys' school, a very interesting school. Actually, someone's just sent me the... Um, the manuscripts of the history of Hackney Down School. It was known for a while as the Jewish Eton. I arrived the year it was became comprehensive, but it was a, it was always a boys' school. And by the by the 1940s, it was possibly a third to 40 percent Jewish, uh, secular, mostly secular Jewish students. Very, you know, um, runners very much uh, as is a kind of public school, um, gowns and everything like that. But I, I did enjoy it. And I suppose, but then I became much more interested in the history of the surrounding area, Hackney. I was becoming very interested in Hackney. And I was fell under the influence of people like Raphael Samuel, the old historian. And... Um, when I, I and then I met Colin Ward actually in 1973, in the, my last year of teaching, who became an, uh, both a close friend but enormous influence on me, and I then left teaching to set up an oral history project in Hackney. Uh, so that was the next stage in my kind of slightly change of career um, as a social historian. Um, I always say when I. When I I do call myself a social historian now, when I but when other people call me a social historian, I always say now that when that happens, somewhere an angel dies or um, a fairy dies because I have no historical qualifications whatsoever. But that's um that's well, the way of the world. 
Yeah, yeah. A historian is someone who writes history, I suppose. And and this idea of oral history, I'm really fascinated by, because obviously, from the academic perspective, we have this we have this rather strange system in place of historiography, as it's broadly called, which is very controlled, very contrived. The oral history thing that you're, you're describing is something very different. But I wanted to come back to um, something you had mentioned before we started recording. And maybe this is seems rather uh, cliche to you, but this idea of you living now in, in, in the East End of London as in a in a mansion flat in a with a shared garden do you feel like this has been part of the inspiration behind the work that you've done because the work as you've described it looking at the idea of intentional community it's quite a radical kind of departure so it's not not and it's not a history that's well written about and it's partly why i got in contact with you I'd, uh, through a friend of mine called hannah loftus she oh, had, yes you, you know hannah I do, I do, I do, yes. Yeah, well, she had tweeted about how she'd gone to see speak, and and so I'd looked you up, and then I'd been to see a co intentional community that I used to go and stay with in, in, the, in the Midlands uh, uh, as a child in a place called Laxton, which was derived from one of the intentional communities that you've written about uh, down in in on, on the Essex coastline, um, where George... Arthona? Yeah. Was it um, Othona or Freighting or the Adelphi Centre? I think it was the Adelphi Centre. Yeah, yeah. And uh, the, some of the families there had gone north and found a space and set up another community. And the community still persists to a certain, to, you know, in, in, in a certain way. Um, anyway, so I got in contact with you to, to, to talk about that intentional community thing um, and to try and talk about a little bit about that. But... Um, but I was wondering, do you do you feel like that your experience of living as a Londoner in that kind of space is significantly influential on the way that you imagine good society, good civic space to emerge? Uh, very much so. But the other big influence on me is the fact that we are 100 yards from Clissold Park, which is one of the great parts of London. And uh, we've lived close by the park for over 50 years, and I've probably been in it at least mm. every other day, if not every day. And the, no day has ever been the same. And I, I very early on, I was fascinated by what you might call park space or the kind of the theatre of park life. And it's a self-managed theatre. People choreograph uh, their own behaviour in it. It's amazing you can get on a busy Sunday 12,000 people in the park, but no police officers. If you put 12,000 people in the other part of London, in a 50-acre site, there will be security guards everywhere. And I, I've been fascinated by the self-discipline of park use and also the, the, the myriad things that people do in parks and also the it's, it's unusually the, the porousness of the difference between private and public. Um, and that does take me back to um, where, how I began to get very involved in public policy. In 1996, I was involved with setting up Demos, the think tank. We knew there was a Labour government coming, and we were looking for a big project to kind of think about job creation and so on. 
And it was, it was the same year in 1996, uh, the Heritage Lottery Fund was set up. And one of their early projects got them some egg on their face because they gave a grant to the Churchill Foundation, I think, for the Churchill Papers, or a foundation. And then it was transpired, in fact, the nation already owned these papers, so it didn't look so good. And um, they were very keen to find a much more public-facing project. And they set up the, the, the National Parks Fund, or the Lottery Fund, Heritage Lottery Fund. And, and I did a lot of work for Demos in researching park use. And, and one of the things that I always remember, but there were many, many things that came out of that research, was that if you talk to young people about why they came to the park, they would say because it was private and that the home they found was too public, that their parents or their brothers and sisters were always annoying them. They, it was very difficult. Mm. And that they came simply to sit on a bench or read a book or listen, you know, to music on earphones. And I became really interested in this notion about the, the, the mixture of public and private, how they can coexist within a small space. Mm. And also the kind of mutability of the weather and the seasons in parts make it such a kind of um, universal setting, Yeah. It's a really interesting idea. But this book that you've had reissued, the second edition, Modern Hospice Design, um, as I said in my email to you, there, there seems to be, to me, a general interest in much of what you've written around care, uh, environmental, spatial care, and the way that space can be articulated to make it more likely to occur. Um, and I was reading Modern Hospice Design and I was thinking, well, and you set out at the beginning, probably even for the beginning half of the book, uh, a real a sort of framework to contextualize that notion, perhaps, to, 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 to deliver a kind of overarching vision of why it's important, what it looks like, how it operates. Um, perhaps you could tell us about a little bit about the origins, the original origins of this book and, and why you think it's been, I guess, successful. And how how perhaps it links back into some of these interests you have in intentional communities and alternative practices, and if if there is one at all. Well, there is because um, I mean the other thing I'm interested in, of course, is where a new building types. How rare it is for a new building type to emerge, and I, you know, through personal you know experiences, I went to visit one or two people in um, many years ago who were had ended up in hospice and I became intrigued by this kind of building type mm -hmm. and I got to go and to St Christopher's uh, on a day visit when they were showing people around and I became very interested. Mm -hmm. St Christopher's was, is really regarded as the pioneer of what we call the modern hospice movement. I mean the, the hospice has a very long tradition but it was um, very perhaps, often. Perhaps, perhaps define what a hospice is, because I think perhaps that might be, certainly for international listeners, that might be something that's quite unique. Yeah. Um, well, in, in the traditional hospice would have been a place where someone, clearly uh, so unwell that their, their death was very imminent, would go for initially, obviously, religious reasons where they would be, their, their soul would be looked after and they mm -hmm. would be uh, given some spiritual comfort in their kind of dying days. 
Um, but in 1967, um, um, the founder of St. Christopher's realised that spiritual um, relief was not enough. Pain relief was the key issue. And she set up St. Christopher's with the idea that it was possibly that people would only be there for 10 days maximum. Well, they would be sent there by the doctor. And there would be a, a very advanced program simply of pain relief. But interestingly, no medical intervention whatsoever. And this is this does make it very different from what was happening in geriatric wards, in hospitals or in care homes. Um, she said, you know, they wouldn't even take the temperature or uh, blood pressure or anything. The whole project was simply to give people dying people in their last days or hours um, pain relief and therefore care and love mm -hmm. and, and and that became a very successful model I was lucky though um, because when I became extremely interested in this at the beginning of the, the, um, this century around 200, 2005 or something like that it was it was mutating in extremely interesting ways um, from being a small inpatient unit, um, uh, quite, very quiet, closed off from the outside world, a retreat in fact, to opening up to offering complementary medicine, um, day care for people, various therapeutic regimes, and people coming and going to the hospice, not simply it was not a, it was a revolving door it was not simply that when you went in you never came out again and um there was a a very wonderful architect who tragically died too early ian clark um who worked for jddk architects in newcastle who had designed a number of hospices he took me around several he'd designed and he said, well, the difference now between now, and this was around 2006, and the early hospices um, was that they have become living villages. And the sense of life there is now the important ethos of the building, that everybody gets a second chance or a last chance to have a, have a, a very different kind of experience of peace, tranquility. Uh, which doesn't remind, again, again, going back to education, I've always been very interested in adult education or second chance education. I do like, I mean, I think we should all be offering people throughout their life another chance. <laughs> uh, and anything that kind of, any kind of institution or programs or funding or whatever that gives people a chance, no matter how late in life, to try something different or you know, do be a different person, I think is very important. So that movement from the retreat, the quiet retreat, to the living village, which then, you know, may have 1,500 people coming and going throughout the year. And if you go to St. Christopher's now, if you go to many of the other hospices, there's all kinds of things going on. The um, I've, In the case study in the new edition of the book, Mm. is St. Wilfrid's Hospice in Eastbourne, um, designed, uh, opened about, well, 10 years ago, actually, this month. And the main entry of that is actually a street. It's a, a large cafe 
They have concerts in there. Um, it's very much a part of the neighbourhood. I mean, it's a kind of social centre. Mm. Um, and I think this demystifying of death and taking the, the fear out of death, but also having a kind of spiritual uh, atmosphere interests me greatly. And I, I will end it on this little kind of iteration. I've been thinking about Larkin's poem about you know, church going where he talks about a serious building on serious earth. And I now think that the hospice, of which we've got now about 240 in the UK, has become the serious building in many communities where, because it's around death, but nevertheless it's opened itself out to being a place of immense kind of symbolic importance. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting idea. And this issue around death, obviously, if that's been kind of front and centre in a lot of, well, everybody's imagination over the last few years sort of reared its head. But it, it was coming anyway, wasn't it? This, I, I, I'm very interested in this notion around architectures of, of, of death and care, because obviously, as organised religion, particularly Christianity, has stepped back, been pushed back from its uh, eminent position in the public square and churches particularly but religious buildings place of worship have always been places in which death is confronted of course yes it becomes more and more difficult for contemporary society to engage with that inevitability and it, are you saying that hospices are taking on that role in a kind of secular society they're starting to adopt that signification I, do, I am, and I think that they're doing it very well. Because you you must remember um, that they're largely self-sufficient in funding. Um, large through, yes, I mean, 75%. And that, this does raise an interesting question about architecture, design, and public funding, because um, if they were wholly um, part of the NHS, they would then have all their architectural guidelines would be massively kind of... Um, underwritten by decades of protocols, which would probably be so rigid that the, the, you'd, you'd kind of blow the life out of them as buildings. Mm. So this independence, as with Magus centres, is very important to innovation and to creating a different kind of ethos, architectural ethos, and presence in the landscape. Mm. What are the key spaces in an in a, in a in a hospice what are the i mean what are the critical spaces that is it individual rooms it's not ward based accommodation are there are they residential units much like a a supported retirement community or and obviously they're not all for if they're to do with palliative care or end of life care or new life care perhaps it's a nice way of putting it um, yes new life care yeah yeah i mean there's children involved middle aged people you know there's people from across the age spectrum as well but, but i mean what do the, what what is involved in a in a hospice well, the, the ward system has more or less disappeared, although some people uh, regret that because, you know, some people do would are, would prefer to be in the company of two or three others. I mean, you would never have a ward of two because if one person died, the kind of feeling in the room would be terrible if you've got to have three. But, but um, for, health, for health reasons, um, single wards, they're all now um, single story and they, I think, all modern hospices now have access to a garden space or a patio garden so that in fine weather the bed can be wheeled out into the garden. And this is kind of quite um, 
uh, I've been to a number of hospitals where they're very proud of saying, and I think it's true, that um, a few of their residents, if they're lucky, manage to die in the garden, you know, under the shade of an apple tree or something like that. Um, that but this ability to open up into the, uh, you know, a land of water, water and trees and uh, the wind and the elements um, in fine weather, yeah. it becomes very important. Uh, but then there are also obviously a large kind of cafeteria now where family and friends can meet and, you know, the patients can sometimes be in there as well. Um, a number of them now have gyms um, for the patients and uh, various forms of complementary therapy, water therapy, other kinds of healing treatments. So it's really it's um it's it's not low it's no longer the quiet um, deathbed kind of scene that's mm -hmm. being invoked. It's um a place of um you know where it's a kind of a it's an ante room in a way to the final world and um but it's an ante room that's filled with good people doing good things and very yeah. calm surroundings. The book itself doesn't just deal with well when I when I was sent a copy by by Routledge, I assumed it would be specifically for buildings that called themselves hospices, but it's not. You look at hospices, but you also look at, as you've mentioned already, a Maggie Center. Uh, I hadn't realized that Maggie Centers would necessarily fall within that category, but also retirement villages. You've got the extra care charitable trusts retirement village in Clifton in Nottingham and the Maggie Centre is by A and what's the architect there for? Amanda Levite. And just to say also the 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 the, the St Wilfred's Hospice which you mentioned in Eastbourne is by RH Partnership Architects. So they're all different types of I guess people wouldn't necessarily think of these as hospices. No, they're no they're not. I mean the book was wide and is much more expanded to call itself um you know, palliative and social care. Mm. It's also got Appleby Blue Almshouse, which is very much making a lot of waves at the moment. It's a very, you know, an, an unusual, extremely imaginative um, iteration of the traditional almshouse, very mm. radical uh, and, and very wonderful, I must say, That's as well. Witherford Watson Man, isn't it? That's right, yes. Um, the Magus centres, of course, are non-residential. That's the that's the main distinguishing feature. But they are all they have to be located um, within the grounds of a large hospital with a big oncology department. But again, they uh, I, they, they are people are learning many lessons from them, uh, particularly around internal design. I mean, I, uh, the Magus centres, the, the the one that I in um, Southampton, Amanda Levy. I mean, it's, it's extremely cleverly internally designed so that there are no doors internally. And yet there's lots of private spaces, but it's the way that the configuration of walls and sight lines allows lots of kind of these wonderful niches of privacy. Yet there are no doors um, in the building. And then, of course, the main feature of most mega centers, all mega centers, really, is the big kitchen table, um, around which you know people can meet or congregate, talk, chat, come and go, um, and 
that's for me very interesting because they've used they've used a lot of kind of group therapy history in that, so that the Tabor is very unobtrusively, but most definitely managed by a member of staff who is skilled in, you know, managing groups um, and really choreographing, making sure that nobody feels isolated or left out or, or if anybody gets very upset or slightly aggressive can, you know, handle that. So there's a lot of kind of psychotherapeutic theory going, you know, histories and understandings going into that. So in a way, why I've become interested in this really is because they are, again, they are new forms of settlement or intentional communities, even if for some people it's only last 10 days or if it's Maggie centres, it's it's, a, it's um, an occasional experience. Mm. They are still communities um, that that have a different kind of ethos of care and, and re reciprocity, very mm. important. You can't do this on a one-to-one -one individual, you know, doctor-nurse or doctor-patient basis. These all really depend on creating a kind of communal atmosphere. The way you talk about health is is really interesting because I think, yeah, if, if the uh, COVID times taught us anything, that was certainly institutional power was sort of sorely lacking in that in that situation there seems to be a kind of idea of co-production or what edgar khan calls um time dollars you know this idea of the way public service is delivered through a co-productive process between institutional people people in positions of authority with expert knowledge and 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 lay knowledge and the way that lay folk self-manage and self-design things and it sounds to me like that these environments part of what is good about them is that they enable that kind of uh, lay knowledge they're not domineering spaces they're not spaces in which a series of kind of um, uh, top-down processes are applied to people which would not be a particularly nice way of going if you were to be in your last days and I was thinking about the New Jerusalem and the New English landscape as well and the way that you seem to be quite interested in the way that ordinary people non-professional people lay people have uh, the way that their knowledge systems and practices work does that have i mean is that something that you have consciously pursued or is that and is that does that have any bearing on the way that these in your in your interpretation the way that these uh, care spaces are effective there's two questions i suppose are you interested is that Am I right in discerning that as an interest in your own work? And then does it manifest itself? Is that what you're picking out? I suppose so. I mean, again, then I would come back again to this early interest in these, um, why Essex became the kind of homeland of um, alternative living for a while, well, for, for decades, actually, whether they were religious or political, therapeutic or or whatever, a lot of run by churches, re retreats, um, and there are still some quite important uh, religious and uh, retreats in, in, the, in the place, um, which relates, of course, to why Essex, well, partly, I've already said, the proximity to the east end of London, but also because it has this kind of slightly inaccessible coastline with lots of islands and rivers and estuaries and quite difficult to access places. Some 
some obviously w with no, t no, no access other than were low tide. And that became a natural home for, for creating spaces where people could retreat. Um, and it, it, again, it's, it's the, the relationship between town and country. I mean, I'm very, very interested in this Davidson Prize that Charles Holland in his um, practice won last year, which is kind of new forms of rural co-production um, mm. and living. And, um, well, I hope we're just going to see more of those because the ecological um, environmental needs of again, you know, in, in agricultural settings, are very important. Mm. Um, and uh, they sh if they can be combined with kind of social purposes as well, that's all to the better. Is it trying to sort of unpick some of the anxieties around being modern? I often come to this thought, or industrialization. I mean, these, these um, intentional communities, these uh, visionary communities that you've talked about on, on the Kent coast and uh, popped up in the early 20th century and mid 20th century all over the place, and which you document, um, and and not not just sort of grassroots communities, but also the way that, for example, you sent me a lovely article that you had, um, had in the New Statesman about Thaxted, the church of Thaxted, um, where you've got individual characters, in that case, the vicars, um, kind of struggling, I suppose, or setting up spaces in which a certain resistance to the anonymity um, uh, anxieties around being modern were possible. I mean, is that... Is that something? I mean, the, the, because the the interesting thing about the care home world, the care that these care environments that you're talking about, the hospices, they seem to me to be. You, they they sit alongside hospitals, but hospitals have this strange, scientific, yeah. alienating character to the way that they procure your health. It's not no one goes into hospital gladly. No. And these hospices seem to also be trying to, and and that and that I think partly is because these hospitals have become more and more alienating, in that way that modernity is an alienating experience. You're more and more reduced down to a kind of avatar, a kind of cipher that is there to be treated, that is there to have treatment applied to you. So it's very interesting that these hospices, these these what do you call them? You describe them as uh, living villages, are actually emerging alongside these spaces, as a counterpoint and a sort of pre-modern counterpoint. Yes, I mean, um, if we think about um, we think about Thaxted, we think about um, the, the music being very much part of mm. Gustav Holst and Imogen Holst. And we think about, well, it basically, death has become medicalised. I mean, this was uh, said early on by Philip Erez in his great book. And what the hospice has done is actually to, to, to medicalise it, say there are more important things. And the thing is, the pressures on medicalisation, I mean, particularly in America, um, are horrendous because um, the so insurance companies have got so much investment in keeping people alive very expensively 
um, because people are paying for it. Mm. And uh, there's, there's now quite a lot of um, research in, you know, well, well, some terrible graphic descriptions of what happens in hospitals when the priority to keep someone alive kind of over, over, overrides um, the, the, the need for them to have a meaningful, peaceful death. And there's quite a lot of research I read on CPR, compulsory pulmonary resuscitation. And there's a description in, of a nurse in just one example where um, some, someone who's quite very ill is wheeled into the CPR room. There are nine staff in there. They're all running around, you know, jump, you know, pressing down the chest and alarm bells are ringing and everything crying. And, and after about 30 seconds or 40 seconds, it doesn't work and they're dead. And then they all leave the room, just leaving an you know a dead person there. Like that's not that's just terrible. Um, it's by basically like you know you wouldn't treat an animal like that. And what the hospice really challenged was that sense that um, death is just kind of the end of a medical system mm. or the end of um, you know. Um, some kind of animalistic kind of process. Yeah, even like, not... the, the, like almost as if it's evidence of the failure of medicine. Well, exactly, exactly. You're, you're exactly right. Yeah, I mean, and that is obviously the doctors are, you know, commanded to, you know, sustain life wherever possible. But there is, comes a point where that sustenance of life actually goes against the meaning of life. Mm. So... The medicalization is is the problem in the hospital system, particularly mm. when it comes to the very vulnerable, very frail, very elderly people who have many, many uh, complicated health problems, and who probably would choose, um, if possible, you know, to go quietly in meaningful surroundings, mm. obviously preferably at home. Yeah. What has inspired this shift, do you think? I mean, obviously, the, the conditions to hand, people expressing that they're uncomfortable with this. I mean, and as you're talking, I was thinking about Ivan Illich's book, um, Medical Nemesis, you know, this yeah. where he talks about how medicine is actually pathological in, in many respects. And, and you know, he, he's a controversial figure. But he's talking about the American healthcare system, which certainly does seem to be fairly pathological. Um, as you as you describe, but what has inspired this move towards these improved care facilities? What's the undergirding ethic at play? I think it is uh, initially it was in public outrage at the conditions of what we used to be called geriatric wards, um, which is a hangover actually from the old workhouse mm. that um, that uh, at the end of life people really were, were had very little kind of human value; they were just there to be kind of warehoused, basically. Uh, and so this was um, Dame Cicely Saunders in 1967 decided that she would do something about it, offer a new model. And, and people really responded to that. And I think there must be, I mean, there are hundreds of thousands of people now very actively engaged in supporting hospices. So that, as I say, there are about 240 of them in the UK. They all raise 75% of their funding 
uh, and they all rely on very large numbers of volunteers. But they become an extremely meaningful place because, um, you know, even after someone has died, that family and friends will often come back and fundraise mm. and come back, you know, for memori annual memorial meetings and so on. So, as you were saying earlier, in a way, it has taken the place of the church um, as the place where death is actually respected and given its proper significance. Mm. I mean, one thing we ha also haven't talked about is that I par partly got into this sphere uh, after the parks world by being commissioned to do some work on the loss of burial space in inner London. I mean, that you can't get buried in London. And in, if you live in any of the inner London boroughs, you can't be buried near where you live. Mm. So you're, if you want to be buried, you have to go out, out into the suburbs somewhere, probably rather grim kind of flat, um, you know, former agriculture man dug up in rather meaningless ways. And, um, and that kind of the loss of the presence of death, either as a place or in a processional, because normally, you know, traditionally, you know, the, the coffin or the hearse travels through the community from the house to the cemetery. Very strong East End tradition, of course, of enormous flamboyant. Uh, funeral processions where everybody, where the where life stopped for a minute, you know, the streets stopped, with the shops the shops came out of their shops, that kind of notion. Well, death has disappeared from that. And one of the things we again we were asked to do as a research for that by the Gulbenkian Foundation um, was really look at um, how memorialization was surreptitiously creeping back into cities by things like commemoration benches, uh, planting trees, commemorative trees in parks. And in fact, I interviewed um, the heads of two inner London park authorities, and they, they were telling me, I mean, the, kind of the, the, length, the lengths of which people would kind of, at night, under cover of darkness, bring the ashes of their mother or father mm. to plant them uh, circumspectly beneath a, a particular tree that their parents had loved. Uh, he said, was, you know, we're always having to deal with it. Mm -hmm. Or people planting trees, wrong season, wrong tree, mm -hmm. uh, again, uh, under cover of darkness um, in the park, where invariably died. But uh, this kind of the way in which people are, I mean, and of course, flowers on, by, on railings where there have been street accidents and so on, this the desire for people to reintroduce kind of memorialization back into the fabric mm. of the inner city is, is is extremely interesting yeah it is i i've i thought about this for a long time you know the the particularly the grassroots manifestations of of um yeah the memorialization of death i mean it's it's an interesting subject as an educator in architecture you kind of try and steer students away from it and it's for two simple reasons. One, it's too easy to make, if you say something's about death, it's very difficult to critique it uh, educationally. Yeah. Um, but the other thing is that it tends towards gloominess and we try, try and keep, keep our young people away from thinking about gloomy things uh, because, God, if they start doing it, what hope have we got?
And so as a consequence, that whole whole kind of discourse around memorialization has kind of disappeared. I think Edwin Lutyens is probably the last significant architect of death yeah. in the country. I can't, Peter Eisenman has done some very interesting things, particularly around the Holocaust of the Jews, um, and obviously Danny Liebskin, but and, it, and it's kind of an interesting one because actually as a culture, architecturally, urbanistically, we've become fixated by memorialization. We have yeah. museums for everything. We even have museums to everyday life, yeah. which is, <laughs> surely you could just have taken over the last woolies and just left that open and then and then that would that would have done it. Um, so I really do find that idea fascinating and that these these hospices then are a corollary of that, aren't they? They are, they are, and I think we. It, it, it's very. I think they have to be commended for creeping up on us, kind of un, un, unnoticed that actually they are now. These very, you know, they're kind, of, they're, they're they're kind of powerful centres of kind of meaning in many towns and cities, yeah. um, because everybody get, you know, so many people go through them. Um, uh, and or they or experience them either as friends or relatives mm -hmm. uh, and so on. And it comes back to this, I think, you know, that notion of the serious building mm. on a serious earth. And seriousness is actually, under capitalism, is sadly lacking um, because we're all supposed to be get busy getting and spending um, and not dwelling uh, and thinking remembering yeah yeah i just a last question about these care environments have you thought about whether there are characteristics to the type type of design processes used to make good ones that is to say one would assume a very well-known architect that, that her design process would be quite a traditional design process insofar as you employ a well-known architect to deliver their vision that's part of what you're paying for i suppose but my understanding would be that in the way that you've talked about them that actually a good care environment a good hospice environment would derive from a much more user-centered user-led design process have you seen that only uh, uh, yes the maggie centers are interested because of course that they um, their foundation, kind of, or their origins. I mean, it's Charles Jenks and his then wife, Maggie Keswick Jenks, who, Jenks, whose diagnosis of um, terminal cancer created this idea of, of um, Maggie Centres. I mean, they gave, they were very serious about the thinking um, needed for these for these places. And they use this phrase, which I've always loved. In fact, I, I, unfortunately, I keep repeating it. Um, they wanted a building that rises to the occasion. And I think that's very interesting because we, what is the occasion? Well, the occasion, I think, is a wonderful word because it's not a building that rises to death. It's somehow a moment of enormous importance, but it doesn't have to be death. But And... So there's that, but with, with the Amanda Levitt, um the, the cleverness of the interior design, which allows for both privacy and, and publicness in a very small space, mm. without doors. I mean, one of the things in the mega centres, again, another 
original preset, no notices. You don't, if you have to be told that a room is an office or a room, another door is a toilet or another door is a bathroom and another door is the recreation room, you fail. I mean, mm. if you can't, if, I mean, you don't go into other people's houses expecting to find notices on every door. If you work it out quickly, bedroom, you know, so on. Um, so there was a lot of thinking going into that, kind of how do you provide this environment without heavy messaging and big serious design kind of over-determination of what people should expect. They must be extraordinarily good commissions to get insofar as you are dealing with this occasion or even more occasions, a constant unfolding of these emotional physical occasions for people and you've got very tight boundaries to what you can do as well the other thing about i think one which should also pay respect to the garden designer of um, um maggie southampton sarah price because uh, and it's a wonderful story but that when there was a, a lot of uh, people at the hospital in southampton were very keen to have a maggie center but the, I think apparently the board of trustees were not happy because it would mean giving up some car parking spaces. And Mag, uh, Amanda Levitt said, well, look, if you let me reconfigure the car parking spaces, I'll find room for the building, but still give you the same number of spaces, which she did. And then she commissioned Sarah Price, or the, the, the Maggie's uh, organisation commissioned the landscape designer Sarah Price, to start work on the site, which was to create a very large, well, four-foot-high kind of earth wall around the site and plant semi-mature trees in it so that before, it, so that once you're inside the building, you look out. I mean, it, it literally is in a corner of a large, horrible car park, of a large, horrible car park. And, but once you're inside the building, you're looking out into woodland. I mean, it's amazing. It's a, uh, I mean, it, it's astonishing kind of coupe de, coupe de theatre, you know. Yeah. So it is like a kind of, in a way, like a theatre set. So, Well, I mean, we get back to Cliff Old Park in the end, don't we? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, that's, uh, I think, a good point to finish on. Thank you very, very much, Ken. Thanks very much, Ambrose. That was good, was it not? Thanks to Ken for speaking with me and Routledge for the book. A link to it is in the podcast description. And there are links to Ken's personal website and his online journal, The New English Landscape, which he produces with Jason Orton, the landscape photographer, which is worth a look. He published New Jerusalem, The Good City and the Good Society with the Swedenborg Society in 2017, which you might seek out as well. Thanks for listening.